0: The
1: News. News Power Hour. Well, it's lucky number 13, 13th of January. It's Thursday. We have a special for you tonight, half an hour discussion with Helen Ziller about the elections, about the future of the DA, about 2024, and that young man that we featured last night, Chris Pappas, the new mayor of Mgeni. It's Alec Hogg here coming to you from Johannesburg with my colleagues, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart. Nadia, are you a Helen Zilla fan?
2: I am. I must say I, she was just always someone that, you know, you knew the name. But after I've been listening to her interviews, she's very capable. I really am a big fan. I'm looking forward to seeing her at the conference.
1: She has wonderful clarity of thought, mm, doesn't she? Yeah.
2: Oh, she speaks very well.
1: It was an interesting point. Uh, it's a it's a half-hour interview that we had today talking about those various topics, and it, it really is uh, worth listening to. So we're going to run the second half of the program by uh, having Helen Ziller and that discussion. But when I looked at it afterwards, I actually didn't have to edit anything out of it, which is most unusual for the work that we do, isn't it, Justin? I mean, sometimes we have to spend, I won't say hours, but certainly a, a lot of time to, to make the, the audio uh, listenable.
3: Exactly, Alec. As much as we would like to think that we're perfect, we're far from it. And uh, editing the audio is just part of uh, the journalism game. So happy to do it. And it, it lets um, viewers in, enjoy our work that much more.
1: Indeed. You mentioned the conference, Nadia. That is coming up in uh, just under six weeks' time now. And Helen Diller will be March. our – Yeah, first of March. Mm-hmm. She'll be our headline act. She'll be presenting or giving us a full hour of her time and, of course, spending the the few days with us. Uh, we've got, I think, last count, over 150 people who've booked to come, which will make it by, by far the biggest uh, conference we've had. Those who haven't been to the conference before, would you say they're in for a treat?
2: Oh, 100%. And also, I mean… It was Herman Mashaba' first conference who spoke first, Musi Mamane's second conference that spoke first. So it would have been easy to think like, oh, how will you top that with like the first speaker this time? <laughs> and I really think Yo, it's going to be at least as good. So she's a legend in many ways. I'm looking forward to it.
1: She's doing incredible things. And it's almost if you look at the DA as a business and you see the young people that are coming through there, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Chris Pappas and, of course, uh, Gordon uh, Hill-Lewis, the mayor of Cape Town, some incredible talent that are, that are rising uh, to the top. So th- the business of the DA is, is also working real well. We didn't talk much about that. We spoke more about state capture and, uh, and the, the scandal, really, of the way that the ANC is deploying judges effectively putting people into position in the in the constitutional system in South Africa who are going to serve the party first and the nation second and that's something that uh, she feels very passionate about and I think after listening to her today you will feel that way as well just to let you know if you haven't yet booked for the biz news conference in the Drakensberg it is from the 1st to the 4th of March as Nadia said go on to the biz news homepage com homepage and at the top right-hand side, you'll see a picture of uh, some people at the conference. Click on that, and it's got all the details. Um, Helen Ziller doing the opening address. But there are, well, there's a full soccer team of people who will be sharing with us, including Pit Fillion, who's the top uh, unit trust manager uh, for the last five years. He'll be there with David Shapiro, giving us an investment masterclass, and, and, and. So just go and have a look on the site, and you'll see that it's uh, a conference, that's really not to miss. Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Now, Nadia Swat will now bring us up to date with what's going on in the news headlines.
2: Acting Chief Justice Raymond Zondo has heavily criticised Tourism Minister Lindiwe Suzulu's recent, recent opinion piece where she challenged the effectiveness of South Africa's constitution. Zondo called a press conference on Wednesday evening, calling Suzulu's words an unwarranted attack on the rule of law, the judiciary, and black judges in particular. Zondo said it crossed the line and expects further action against her. Suzulu says she is conferring with her legal team over the press conference and has since penned yet another opinion piece in response to some of the criticism she has received, saying she is protected by freedom of speech in the Constitution. The Pretoria High Court has found that South Africa's Administrative Adjudication of Road Traffic Offences Act and the Arto Amendment Act are unconstitutional. This comes after civil society group, the organization Undoing Tax Abuse, abuse approached the court in October 2021 to declare both the main Act and the Amendment Act unconstitutional. In her ruling, Judge Anneli Basson found in favour of ATA and agreed with the group's position that the legislation unlawfully intrudes upon the exclusive executive and legislative competence of the local and provincial governments envisaged in the constitution, preventing local and provincial governments from regulating their own affairs. The ATA system was expected to become fully operational in July 2022, which would include the official introduction of the new traffic demerit system. And Cape Town Mayor Jordan Hill-Lewis says his city formally rejects an application by ESCOM to increase the price of electricity by 20.5% in the 2022-2023 financial year. In a letter addressed to ESCOM Chief Executive Andre de Hill-Lewis asked that ESCOM formally withdraw the application or alternatively revise it to bring the planned increase in line with inflation. He warned that citizens simply cannot afford the planned increase. While Hill-Lewis acknowledged that some of ESCOM's inefficiencies have improved under under Dorator, he cautioned that passing the bill on to struggling consumers should not be the default solution and said that several alternative strategies have been suggested to ESCOM. Justin, what's been going on in the markets? The JSE All Share Index was
3: up at 75,700. In the currency markets, the RAND was largely flat against all the major currencies, to 15 rand, 37 cents to the dollar, 21 rand and 10 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 62 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,823 an ounce. rand will put you back approximately 29 and a half rand. crude is up, trading at $85 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 670,000 rand. In the financial news, U.S. consumer prices soared in 2021 by the most in nearly four decades, illustrating red-hot inflation that sets the stage for the start of Federal Reserve interest rate hikes as soon as March. The Consumer Price Index climbed 7% in 2021, the largest 12-month gain since June 1982, according to Labor Department data released on Wednesday. The widely followed inflation gauge rose 0.5% from November, exceeding forecasts.
1: Justin, uh, coming up in the program, uh, well, straight after the markets now, we will be hearing from our colleagues at the Financial Times in London where there calls for Boris Johnson to resign and uh, climate change activists are attacking large PR firms around the world saying that they're trying to greenwash uh, the views of the public about their clients, in other words, about big corporates. But following that, you had a fascinating interview with Paul Hoffman Uh, from accountability now on state capture
3: yes paul and i go through state capture commission part one paul just breaks that down into bite-sized chunks and then lastly we talk about the implications of the accused which are likely to be consolidated in that third tranche expected to be released at the end of february
1: so lots coming up for you in your hour of power this evening This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Today is Thursday, January 13th, and this is your FT News Briefing. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson faces calls to resign. The commodities boom now includes nickel, and the plant-based food maker Beyond Meat is on short sellers' menu. Plus, climate activists have started to target the world's biggest PR firms. What the
4: activists think these firms are doing is greenwashing the images of those rather brown, dirty firms.
0: We'll discuss the latest tactic. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Boris Johnson just had his toughest day since becoming prime minister. He's been under attack for attending a Downing Street party in 2020, despite lockdown rules then. And yesterday he faced calls to resign. He tried to buy some time with an apology.
4: I know the rage with me and with the government I lead when they think that in Downing Street itself, the rules are not being properly followed.
0: DFT's George Parker talks about the murky future for the UK prime minister.
5: Boris Johnson has apologised, but he's set up an an independent inquiry into these parties led by a senior civil servant called Sue Gray. Sue Gray will report back probably towards the end of next week, and she's going to basically put out all the facts into the public domain. And at that point, I guess, politicians, Tory MPs in particular, will have to take a view on whether Boris Johnson's breach of these rules was so egregious that it merits his resignation. I suspect what will happen is that Sue Gray will set out the facts and make some quite sweeping criticisms of the culture in Number 10 Downing Street, including the culture of people drinking while at work. But it won't necessarily be sort of a death knell politically for Boris Johnson. And my expectation is that he'll clear out some of the Number 10 staff who are responsible for some of these parties, in other words, blaming his officials, and stagger on.
0: So just out of curiosity, George, Is there concern that Johnson admitting that he broke COVID rules will embolden people to say, you know, if the prime minister isn't going to follow COVID protocols, why should I? Yeah,
5: I think that's a real problem. I think the only good thing about that from the government's point of view is that in England, we're getting towards the end, we hope, of the Omicron wave. It's quite likely, I think, that when the current restrictions legally expire on the 26th of January, that they won't be renewed. So that will mark a phase when we start to move into the new era of living with COVID rather than relying on restrictions. But I think the more damaging thing for Boris Johnson is that people can very well remember what they were doing in 2020 when the first lockdowns were in place, when we've heard some very heart-rending stories from people, from MPs and from their constituents, who were sticking rigidly to the rules, who were seeing loved ones dying in hospitals through a glass pane because they weren't allowed to be in the same room as them. Uh, People unable to attend weddings or funerals. I mean, some really heart wrenching stories. And the idea that Boris Johnson was basically having drinks parties with, you know, in this case, 30 or 40 staff who turned up at the event is quite sickening
0: for quite a few people. George Parker is the FT's political editor. Commodities are booming right now. Nickel rose to a 10-year high of nearly $23,000 a ton. Demand for the metal has shot up as stockpiles have dwindled, and a big part of that is that car producers are ramping up their production of electric vehicles. Nickel is used in the most powerful EV batteries, and demand for EVs is rising. In the U.K. this past December, electric vehicles made up a quarter of new car sales. Copper also rose yesterday. The world's most important industrial metal traded above $10,000 a ton for the first time since October. The rise was sparked by China saying it'll support its economy with more stimulus. Meanwhile, oil hit 85 bucks a barrel. Climate change activists have a new strategy. Now, they're not only targeting companies that pollute, they're also targeting the people who craft their eco-friendly messages.
4: They've gone after Edelman, the world's largest PR firm. They've gone after WPP, the giant London-based ad-holding company and communications group.
0: That's our U.S. business editor, Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson.
4: And they've gone after Dentsu, which is Japan's largest advertising company. And these are the companies which represent the world's largest fossil fuels companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron and the rest. And what the activists think these firms are doing is greenwashing the images of those rather brown, dirty firms by emphasising the cleaner, more renewable, more sustainable, happy, shiny stuff that they do, while minimizing the pollution they continue to create um, through their traditional fossil fuel activities.
0: So, Ed, I want to play you an advertisement that WPP produced for ExxonMobil to show what activists are unhappy about.
5: ExxonMobil is growing algae for biofuels that could one day power planes and cut their greenhouse gas emissions in half. Algae, its potential just keeps growing.
0: Now that sounds really wholesome. Um, What would activists say is the problem here? It does sound
4: wholesome. And I think there's no question that all of these traditional energy companies are investing a lot of untraditional stuff, which would cut greenhouse gas emissions if it uh, happened at scale. The problem is, in the eyes of activists, that the PR firms and the ad agencies are putting out this kind of ad to, to make that investment look larger than it is and to implant in the public imagination the idea that nothing much needs to change because these companies are changing by themselves and becoming more sustainable, becoming more responsible. Well, in fact, at the same time, they're spending vastly more money on their traditional high-emitting activities.
0: So what tactics are activists using in this campaign against the ad industry?
4: So these are people who've worked in the climate movement for many years, many of them, and they've grown up protesting outside oil companies' headquarters and outside Congress, and they've realized how slow it is to get change that way. But what they're doing by targeting the PR and advertising industries is using those industries' tactics against them. They're using social media campaigns, they're using open letters that they're sending to the press to call out the companies that are revising the oil and gas industry and try and name and shame those companies. And their thesis is, if you can persuade uh, industries which are staffed by pretty young, creative, idealistic types who've grown up fairly attuned to the messages of the climate movement, then you may manage to change those oil and gas companies faster by starving them of the expertise they need to put out the next happy, shiny, clean and green ad.
0: What do PR companies say in response? How do they defend their work? A company like
4: Edelman, which put out a new set of principles in response to this pressure from activists in recent days, says we have to be in the room with this kind of client because they're where the emissions are. We need to be working with companies like this that are dirty now but are trying to get cleaner and we can help them get cleaner. We can help them tell the story of this transition to a cleaner, greener version of what they're going to be doing over the next 50 years. Um, That does not wash with activists whose response is typically, well, you've been in the room for a long time and not enough has changed. So that is where the tension is and that's what's driving this clash now.
0: Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson is the FT's US Business Editor. Thanks, Edge. Before we go, Beyond Meat has become a juicy menu item for short sellers. Amid weaker sales and growing skepticism about products for plant-based meats, investors have begun betting against the company. So they make money when the stock goes down. The trouble for Beyond Meat began last fall when the company issued a revenue warning, then reported lower than expected earnings. Beyond Meat's gotten scorched ever since. As of Monday, bearish bets accounted for 42% of Beyond Meat's freely traded shares. It's now one of the most shorted companies on the U.S. stock market. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
3: I'm Justro Roberts of BizNews and with me to discuss the State Capture Commission Part 1 is Director of Accountability now, Paul Hoffman. Paul, it's been a cumbersome process to get to this point. The report will be handed over in three parts. The second and third are expected to be handed over at the end of January and February, respectively. Part one of the report is lengthy, almost 900 pages. Part one was split into three subsections, namely South African Airways and its subsidiaries, the New Age newspaper and its controversial business breakfast, and SARS and public procurement in this country. Is there anything that we didn't already know that has been disclosed in part one that wasn't freely available before the release of the report?
6: No, I think that the... uh the investigative uh journalists in south africa the whistleblowers those who have pored over the uh, the evidence like paul holden from uh, uh from london they have all got to take a bow in fact the uh, the uh, just justice zondo is very complimentary toward whistleblowers like ethel williams and cynthia Stimple. Uh there is nothing new the only thing that is new is that the version of the whistleblowers and the version of the investigative journalists at Amabungani, Scorpio, News 24, Biz News, Paul O'Sullivan even? Their version is accepted by uh, the, uh, the acting Chief Justice, which is a feather in the cap of their work, and it certainly puts the uh, onus on those fingered to now either uh, man up to what they have done or, which is more likely, to take the findings against them on review and to challenge the um, analysis of the facts that has been made by the Zondo Commission. And chief, uh, the acting Chief Justice has actually anticipated that uh, there will be uh, review proceedings by various people who resist being um, held to account.
3: Where to from here? As I mentioned earlier, we know that part two and three are expected to be released at the end of January and February, respectively. But what actions are likely to be taken by the president? Or put differently, are those implicated likely to see justice?
6: Yes, I think as far as uh, the governmental response is concerned, it is very clear that the reform of the Criminal Justice Administration is necessary. You will remember, because you're a good journalist, that in August 2020, the National Executive Committee of the ANC said that it is time to create a permanent, standalone, independent uh, entity to deal with corruption. And that really uh, matches What the courts have said in the Glenister litigation, which was was waged uh, years ago, the the inwardness of reform of the criminal justice administration is that the government has to come up with a uh, plan that is constitutionally compliant and which matches the uh, the resolution that. Uh, the nec of the anc passed calling upon uh, um, the uh, for, for for cabinet urgently to establish such a body a new anti-corruption body where uh, the the functions relating to dealing with serious corruption are uh, in in a one-stop shop a permanent entity which is what the scorpions and the hawks are not even the id is not a permanent entity And what accountability now has done in this regard is in August last year, that is a year after the NEC, we produced a draft constitutional amendment and draft enabling legislation for what we call the Chapter 9 Integrity Commission. We say that permanence is best achieved by housing your anti-corruption machinery of state within Chapter 9 because you can't close down a Chapter 9 institution without a special majority in Parliament. If the Scorpions had been a Chapter 9 institution, they would still be with us today, but they are not because they weren't. We've also uh, suggested that the National Prosecuting Authority should be freed of the shackles of the Ministry of Justice and made more independent reporting only to Parliament and not to the Ministry of Justice. The uh, Director General of Justice is the accounting officer of our supposedly independent prosecution service. That's s- simply not good enough and we have suggested amendments in that regard. But the uh, what we call the Integrity Commission is called by the, uh, the Zondo Commission a um, commission against... Corruption, ACASA, anti-corruption agency uh, of South Africa, and it bears similarities to what to what we have suggested. It seems to be focused only on the uh, procurement by the state, but um, we we think that a a, a a elimination of serious corruption from the work of the national prosecuting authority. And the transfer of that responsibility to what we call the Integrity Commission is in fact the best practice way to implement the um, findings of the Constitutional Court, which are binding, uh, unlike the Zondo Commission findings, the findings of the Constitutional Court are binding on the state. They don't seem to have been properly understood and the, um, uh, the... the reform process in the very near future will have to include a proper analysis of what the law actually is, because those, Zondo um, was not in the uh, the Glenister II case. He, he was not uh, sitting in, in, in that um, hearing. But in that case and still binding in law, are the criteria for the anti-corruption machinery of state, which we have called the STRS criteria, uh, specialised, trained, independent, resourced, and secure in tenure of office, or what the NEC calls permanent. And uh, getting those into the law uh, has not happened with the Hawks-NPA combination that has been in place uh, during the, uh, the Zuma years, and the, uh, the reform needs to be aimed at achieving best practice compliance with what the law requires in relation to anti-corruption machinery. Uh, Zondo's recommendation um, it go- goes part of the way, but not all of the way, and a, a national debate is required Everybody should be thinking about it and uh, the uh, Parliament and the Cabinet, the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Police need to be looking at the draft which was made available to them in August last year by Accountability Now. Anybody can see it on our website and anybody is welcome to criticise it, to suggest how it can be improved and everybody should be uh, assisting in uh, generating the political will that is required to put proper anti-corruption machinery of state in place this isn't really a legal question at all it's a question of the political will to stop tolerating corruption to stop the culture of impunity that is abroad in the land and to put an end to looting without having to pay back. And all of those can be achieved if the necessary will is generated by the people of South Africa and by the politicians who supposedly represent them uh, in in, uh, processing the recommendations of the Zondo inquiry insofar as they relate to anti-corruption machinery, In processing the, well, the Cabinet is required to process the resolution of the NEC. It is the highest uh, decision-making body in the the ANC between uh, conferences. And, of course, Parliament has been given the benefit not only of um, of the accountability now draft, but also of an initiative which was started in July last year by the Democratic Alliance, which uh, is not as brave as accountability now because it has decided only to seek to reform the investigative machinery for anti-corruption work. It has not yet gone as far as accepting that the National Prosecuting Authority is not up to the task and that the prosecutorial functions should also be transferred to the new body that is what we are uh, contending for in uh, in the drafts that have been suggested by accountability now and um, it is certainly uh, our version is certainly closer to what uh, uh, Justice Zondo is suggesting in his report so there's a lot of work to be done yet and and as I say the, the Zondo recommendations bind nobody, and the, the, the task is really, if, if, if Parliament is going to fulfill its oversight and accountability functions, if it is going to be open, accountable, and responsive, as the Constitution requires it to be, then there ought to be an urgent debate about the nature and extent of the reform of the Criminal Justice Administration so as to bring to account those who have been involved in uh, state capture and so as to prevent state capture again by the deterrent effect of showing that uh, corruption with impunity is history in South Africa and that if you if you are corrupt, you will be caught, you will be tried and you will be punished your loot will be raked back from you. That's really the the best thing that we can get uh, arising out of our taxpayer one billion rand investment in the in the Zondo Commission. <laughs>
1: The third BizNews conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is 7,750. For couples, it's 12,950. Book your seat by going onto the BizNews Investment Conference button on the right hand side of the BizNews.com homepage. See you there. Helen Zilla, it's so good to be talking with you at a very important part in the democracy's history here in South Africa. Just to, to go back a little bit before we go into the uh, real meat and potatoes of the discussion, cater deployment, what exactly is it?
7: Well, cater deployment should be the meat and potatoes of any discussion on the failing state in South Africa because it is the root cause of it. All the rest is symptoms the root cause is this committee in the ANC called the Cadre Deployment Committee. We now know what its composition is. Very senior members of the ANC, cabinet ministers and others, chaired by the deputy president, mm. that nominates ANC cadres, loyal ANC cadres, on the basis of the first criteria that they are loyal to the ANC, into very senior positions across the state state owned entities, Chapter 9 institutions, the judiciary, right down into the organs of state, down to middle management level. And it is this horrific state of affairs that has resulted in the flight of skills, the difficulty in acquiring new skills across those various departments and entities that I've just spoken about, And leads directly to state capture. Because the people who are deployed by the ANC know that their loyalty to the ANC comes first. That is the basis on which they're going to keep their jobs. That is the basis on which they're going to advance in their jobs. And when they are told to make sure that certain ANC-connected people are preferred for posts, or when they are told to ensure the tenders and contracts reach specific people, they know that they have to keep the ANC happy to stay in their jobs because they are ANC employees and not appointed for their skills and competence to deliver services to South Africans as a whole. The party comes first. And so that is known as state capture. There is this mad idea that state capture has something to do with the Guptas capturing the procurement process of the state. No, it has something to do with the ANC capturing the state, which should be independent. There's a division between party and state which has become completely obscured under the ANC, and the mechanism for obscuring that is the ANC's Catered Deployment Committee. And once the ANC has captured the state, all business people have to do is to capture the president of the ANC, and they basically then also become central to state capture. So this is something that people need to understand. It is the meat and potatoes of the failing state in South Africa. And until SCADA deployment is declared unconstitutional, which we hope will emerge out of the third Zondo Commission, and until this evil practice is stopped, And until we have a meritocratic civil service, state failure is going to continue in South Africa.
1: Now, a lot of this has been suspected uh, and, in fact, almost proven in certain areas. But there was dynamite in the Zondo Commission, helped along by one of your colleagues, Dr. Leon Schreiber, who went to great pains to get the minutes of the ANC's CAIDA Deployment uh, Committee. Uh, which uh, I think, as you've said on your Facebook page, Sir Ramaposa himself uh, chaired for five years while he was deputy president. Why was it so important to get hold of those minutes?
7: Well, it is very important to get hold of the minutes of that meeting because then you can see exactly what they did, how far their reach was, what criteria they used, which institutions in the state they directly influenced appointments in, what jobs were reserved for ANC cadres, what onuses and obligations were put on ANC cadres, and the extent to which the party captured the state. And we didn't know that for sure. We obviously suspected it, and cater deployment has been a thing since Nelson Mandela launched that policy in 1997 at the Keng Congress of the ANC, and the DA has been exposing and opposing that policy ever since then and warning that it would lead to centralization cronyism catered deployment corruption and the criminal state i've been saying that since the late 1990s that has all come to pass and that has been the obvious outcome of the policy of catered deployment but if you want the proof the nuts and bolts you've got to know what decisions were taken by whom, about what, and what it influenced. And that's why we've put such a lot of store in trying to get those minutes. Now, Leon Schreiber, who is our shadow minister of public administration, is like a dog with a bone. He won't let it go. And we first suggested that the Zondo Commission subpoena the minutes of the cater Deployment Committee, which the Zondo Commission, commission did. And then we used the Promotion of Access to Information Act Well, Leon Schreiber drove that, but the DA backed him and ensured that we could use that act to get those minutes, which we now have through the Zondo Commission. And they're explosive, to say the least. They tell you why the state has failed in South Africa.
1: But it goes a lot further. Uh, When you start talking about business, you can almost get a good sense that uh, those people who were running Eskim and Transnet and so on were put there by the ANC. But we are a constitutional democracy, so the real power in this country lies in the courts. And that, as you wrote again on your your Facebook page, uh, is the thing that even surprised you, the degree of cater deployment that has occurred there.
7: Well, I've suspected it for a very long time. In my previous role as Premier of the Western Cape, I was ex officio a member of the Judicial Service Commission. And because I have such a strong belief that politicians should not be on structures recommending judges for appointment, I always sent a top lawyer to represent me there because I was able to send a nominee. And to show my principled objection to politicians serving on the JSC, I always sent a top lawyer to speak there on my behalf and to take decisions on the basis of the requirements of The crucial role of a judge and certainly not on any political criteria and but from the beginning I've been suspecting and the few times that I was there myself I knew that the ANC had pre-caucused the outcome the ANC nominees constituted a majority on the Judicial Service Commission and it was a foregone conclusion and ever since very cynically I think it was about 10 or 12 years ago that the ANC manipulated the majority for itself on the Judicial Service Commission, I've said that is another extension of the CADA Deployment Committee. And these are people who are being put there because the ANC also wants to extend its tentacles into controlling the judiciary. And the minutes actually indicate how far that went. We've only got the minutes um, from 2018. So we've got only a small sliver of the minutes from the time that David Mabuza was the deputy president of the ANC and of the country. However, we are trying now to get the minutes from when Cyril Ramaphosa chaired the K-Deployment Committee. And we have absolutely no doubt that it will reflect exactly the same thing because that practice is entrenched in the ANC and continues to be. And the point I keep making is, State capture is not a Jacob Zuma thing. It is an ANC thing. It is alive and well under Cyril Ramaphosa today. And in fact, Cyril Ramaphosa in his role as deputy president was the key mover behind CADA deployment as chair of the CADA deployment committee in those crucial years when he was deputy president under Jacob Zuma. And it's those minutes that we need to get hold of.
1: But from what you've said, the whole Judicial Service Committee was a sham.
7: Pretty much. Um, We used to go there, go through the motions. I mean, like all employment or all selection processes under the ANC are a total sham. The Catered deployment Committee has decided before we should get where. The instruction goes out and then they just basically go through the motions. It's a sham and it's pitiful that this should be allowed to happen, and that's why we're exposing it. We want merit-based appointments, not based on biological markers, such as race, gender, and other identity criteria. We need to rebuild a broken state, and it's got to be on the basis of merit. It's got to be a meritocracy, and particularly the appointment of judges, given the pivotal role of the judiciary in our constitutional democracy. As you say, we don't have the sovereignty of Parliament anymore. A majority in Parliament can't decide what happens. What they decide has to conform with the Constitution as adjudicated by the Constitutional Court. And the shocking thing about this latest round of minutes, and that's just a very short period of minutes, is that two of the Constitutional Court vacancies were filled by employees nominated by the Deployment Committee. Now, you know, when they've captured the Constitutional Court then we might as well go back to the sovereignty of the majority party in Parliament because the sovereignty of the Constitution will mean sweet Fanny Adams at that point.
1: Those people have been identified. Clearly in the minutes there will be others who have been identified. What happens next? Can you apply for them to be to step down?
7: Well, we've been taking legal advice on this, and believe me, you've just seen the start. We've got a whole lot more to do. The very best starting point, according to our legal advice, is with the state-owned entities and the extent to which they were totally captured by the ANC for purposes of corruption and for purposes of enriching their networks and for turning the ANC into a criminal syndicate or an interlocking network of criminal syndicates. And there we have the really clear proof of what was going on and the dishing out of posts and the reservation of positions and the parceling out of which positions could be filled by the minister and which could be filled by the Cada Deployment Committee. And you even have the remarkable spectacle in those minutes of President Ramaphosa having to apologise to the Deployment Committee because he appointed people to a board, which he's entitled to do, without going through the deployment committee and getting their go-ahead to do so. This is the extent to which this deployment committee actually runs South Africa behind the scenes. It's the shady committee that works behind the scenes like a kind of executive of the Bruderbond who deploys cadres into every single key vacant position in the state and determines who shall be where. And that's going to destroy South Africa, completely destroy South Africa. And if they have done that in the judiciary, well, as you say, the adjudication of the constitution will be done by judges who owe their primary loyalty to the ANC first and the constitution second.
1: You've never been a shrinking violet, but I haven't heard you speak so forcefully as you've just done about criminal syndicates, etc., is this? Then you weren't
7: listening, Alex.
1: <laughs> Not closely enough, obviously. But it, it, you did, what you've seen in the minutes and what you've seen from Zonda, uh, you also said that this surprised even you.
7: Yes, it did surprise even me. I mean, it is so unbelievably cynical and the reach and the extent of it. I mean, I'm just looking at the notes here from Leon Schreiber. Over the past three years, these minutes show, deployment happened in 88 state entities involving 29 ministers and deputy ministers. It interfered in the courts, the SOEs, Chapter 9 institutions, government departments across the board and extended really deep into every department as far as deputy director general level. And here, I mean, it's just extraordinary how how this continues. And it makes basically the state become an instrument of the ANC. And it shows complete complete failure to understand that the essence of a democracy is the limitation of power, not the exercise of brute control of the state through the abuse of power. The ANC has never understood that. And it is also clear from those minutes that the ANC has never understood what kind of transition we had in 1994. In 1994, we moved away from the sovereignty of parliament to the sovereignty of the constitution under the adjudication of a constitutional court. That was the big transition that happened in South Africa. Not that the ANC won an election and then could do what it liked, like the National Party could do before it. The sovereignty of the majority in Parliament ended in 1994, and certainly with the adoption of the 1996 constitution. And today, all over the place, you see presentations being made to the ANC saying, it can't be possible that we who have a majority in parliament can be told by the courts what to do because they do not understand the difference between parliamentary sovereignty and constitutional sovereignty. And today, 25 years later, they still don't get it. But when they start to get it, the conclusion is we have to control the courts. And this is what these minutes have exposed.
1: The concern that many are uh, voicing now is that with the ANC going below 50% in the last election, and we did have a conversation immediately after the local elections where you pointed out, and it, it came to pass, that none of the opposition parties wanted to ally in any way with the ANC. If that trend continues, then come 2024, we might have a very different situation in South Africa. And the concern is that the ANC will not let that happen.
7: Well it's highly likely that the ANC will fall below 50 percent nationally in the next election, and then we're in an entirely new ball game, an entirely new ball game. Now obviously, coalitions are very difficult things, very, very difficult. And unless you have a powerful and strong and stable anchor tenant like the D.A, it floats all over the place. And we've had the enormous challenge I've spent most of the last six to seven weeks in the negotiation process with other parties to establish coalitions in 22 municipalities across South Africa, across, I think, seven provinces in South Africa, which is huge for the opposition. Our reach extends now far beyond the Western Cape, including the major metros except Etiquini or Durban, And with a very narrow margin also, except Nelson Mandela Bay, but that could change any day now. So the DA, along with other parties in coalitions together, are governing 50% of South Africa's economy at least. At least. And that trend will continue. But it's, of course, incredibly dependent on the way we run these coalitions. Now, for the first time, we have a very important coalition agreement, which dots the I's and crosses the T's and says what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And we drew that up based on my experience of running a coalition and on our governance unit's inputs, and then with lawyers who helped panel beat that into a good coalition agreement shape. We then took that into coalition negotiations with the other opposition parties across the country. In some places, we have as much as 10 parties, as many as 10 parties in a coalition, which makes it incredibly t- difficult to manage. So the next five years at local government level, the big asset test will be how are those coalitions managed. Now, South Africans mustn't be under any illusions. It's not like coalitions in Europe where there is a tiny ideological difference between the various parties in the coalition, the basics are all settled and they all agree on those basics. They agree on the rule of law. They agree on the supremacy of the constitution. They agree on a market-based economy with social safety nets for the poor. They agree on a range of things which coalition partners in South Africa that replace the ANC do not necessarily agree on. So coalition management in South Africa is a hugely complex and difficult task, but that is what the voters chose, even though you all know that the DA told them what the consequences might be. But we have to respect the choice of the voters, which we do, and we will do our darndest and our utmost with our coalition partners to make these coalitions work successfully. In some places, we are in minority coalitions. Now, that means that even when all the opposition parties come together, we can't get 50% plus one of the seats in that council. But nor can the ANC, because let's say the EFF holds the balance of power and isn't going with either side, for example. Then we run a minority coalition which is incredibly vulnerable and incredibly unstable and lives from meeting to meeting of the council. That is not ideal. We are working very hard to turn the city of Johannesburg into a majority coalition, which would involve a 10-party coalition, but stabilize that and see if we can go the full term. The city of Chwani is currently a majority coalition. Makhali City is a very interesting, stable coalition, But we don't have a majority there yet, so it is a minority coalition. Of course, in Cape Town, we won an outright majority, which was fantastic. And of course, that makes it very easy for us to apply our policies and to go forward. So South Africa is in a very complex transition phase. We are in the era of coalitions. And our big challenge now, in order to beat the ANC nationally, is to make coalitions work at local level, give it everything we've got, and then take on the ANC in 2024.
1: Is that the strategy for the next two and a half, or less than two and a half years now, until the next national election?
7: Well, yes. I mean, I'm not revealing any state secrets here, or any DA secrets here, or any coalition secrets here. That is obvious to any political observer in South Africa. The ANC fell under 50% for the very first time nationally in these local government elections. I don't think they can regroup and recover. On the contrary, the tension is going to get bigger and bigger and the split's deeper and deeper. If anybody saw what Lindiwe Susulu recently wrote in her attack on the Constitution and the Constitutional Court, you will see that she was once the compromise candidate between Jacob Zuma and Cyril Ramaphosa. She's now clearly located in the RET faction of the ANC, judging by the article that she wrote. And the tensions are just going to get bigger and bigger in the ANC. So, of course, our job is to establish stable coalitions that that can go the distance. And no one understands how hard that is. I had a seven-party coalition to run in Cape Town. It is incredibly difficult, even in the best of circumstances. And so we will try and we will put every ounce of effort into it. But voters must realize that they get the governments they vote for. We will do our best with the consequences. We accept the voter's choice, but instability can be a consequence of that choice.
1: I had a fascinating interview earlier this week uh, with Chris Pappas, the mayor of one of your majority councils, the first one you won in KwaZulu-Natal. And the feedback we've had already uh, on that interview has been incredibly supportive. And he's one of a number of these young guns that, or young lions that you've developed in the DA. Is that the strategy to get to get a lot of energy in there, get uh, get into local government? You think of of this young man, uh, Chris Pappas, who presumably would have much bigger fish to fry in the provincial government, et cetera, And yet he's gone back to his home town, and he's trying to make a difference at that level. Is that? what you're engendering, or perhaps you can just give us some more insight into the thinking.
7: Well, the DA wants to attract young talent from across the board in South Africa, and Chris Papas is a great talent. There's no question about it, and we are delighted that young people are so full of energy, vision, excitement, and of course, he's completely fluent at speaking Zulu, unlike me with my learned at great cost Which is still very rudimentary compared to his absolutely fluent Zulu, his relationship with the local community, his um, persona. Obviously, those are the people that we're trying to attract. You know, we have Jordan Hill Lewis, the youngest ever mayor of the city of Cape Town. And so these are young talents that have been in the party for a long time. And we have learned not to parachute people in, we have learned that people must grow through the ranks of the party and prove themselves as they do so. And here are two very clear examples of people who've done so. And we've given them a chance in the case of these two, not because they're white males, perhaps despite the fact that they're white males, but it's because the DA looks for talent and doesn't look for identity markers. We've learned that very hard lesson as well. We're going to put people who are really outstanding into key positions, and we're going to show the DA difference. We obviously want to be diverse. We want people of all backgrounds, all races, all cultures to be able to work together for a single set of values in which we defend each other's rights and each other's cultural values and cultural rights. We want to all work on that project together in a party that defends constitutionalism and the rule of law and a market-based economy with social safety nets for the poor and non-racialism which is unbelievably threatened at the moment. There's this notion of anti-racism, which is not non-racialism. In fact, it is the opposite of non-racialism. And so it falls to the DA to protect these absolutely cardinal values without which South Africa will fail. And we're looking for people across the board, but especially the youngsters who are passionately committed to their future in South Africa and to defending these values to become part of our organization to grow with it, not to seek to leapfrog right to the top for any reason other than their incredible talent and ability, and then to give them all the opportunities that we can, support them very much where we can, and let them shine. And that is what Chris Pappas is doing.
1: In the book, in your most recent book that you wrote, uh, you, you had quite a um, depressing feeling about where we were as a country. Has it lightened? Has your mood lightened since the local elections and now looking forward to the potential of a change in government in South Africa in 2024?
7: Well, I'm in for the very long haul. You know, um, my first book was called My Autobiography when I thought I was going to retire, was called Not Without a Fight, and I absolutely mean that. And politics is only for people who can stay the long haul. It's not for people who get bored quickly, And it's not for people who are sensitive and get easily slighted and start sulking. If you're going to do that, you must choose another profession or another job. And so I've always been an optimist about South Africa. I think there is too much that we have in this country to allow it to fail. And I think enough people realize that. A lot of people have been fooled for a lot of the time. We've taken a lot of flack from the legacy media and from business about our very tough stance. As you say, I'm a tough talker, and a lot of people don't like that. But I'm quite happy that in the future, when people look back, they might see that some of the most controversial things that I've said that were controversial in the time and place that I said them needed to be said, were truthful, and that the debates that were unleashed by them were critical to getting South Africa on the right course. Now, I'm not the only one, I just happen to be one of the people that catches the most flack. I mean, many other people can say exactly the same thing and they'll get by without any kind of whisper. If I say it, all hell breaks loose, which is fine by me. I take it as a kind of compliment, actually. But I'm not going to keep quiet because everybody gets upset with what I'm saying. And people say, no, I mustn't say it in this way and I mustn't raise this and I mustn't do that. I'm a straight talker. That's who I am. That is what I believe South Africa needs, and that is what they'll get from the DA.
1: But has your mood lightened?
7: Yeah, I think it has. You know, we have even got now more governments than we had in 2016, which was supposed to be our fantastic, spectacular breakthrough election. We have 12 outright governments with outright majorities and 22 coalitions. I'm now with some very, very good partners in other parties, in a joint committee that is responsible for managing those coalitions. We sat up until very, very late last night, strategizing how we would manage the voting for the committee chairs in Johannesburg today to make sure that the coalition would win. And it's a job that really excites me, it challenges me. And when I've got a lot of very big challenges to face and to surmount, that's when I'm at my happiest and my most optimistic.
1: Thanks for being with us today, Thursday, the 13th of January. Just to remind you that uh, tomorrow night we've got Carrie's Corner on FMR and uh, no broadcast on High FM. We'll be back again, the Biz News team, with the Power Hour as per usual on Monday. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.